Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This episode does include a crime against a new mother so listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you'd like to email the host directly my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Queen Mary I was the first woman to rule England, and her fierce persecution of Protestant followers gained her the nickname of Bloody Mary. While her nickname lives on in the popular alcoholic drink that accompanies many Sunday pre-football brunches in America, she is also known for one of the most famous cases of a false pregnancy. When the last male heir to the throne, King Edward VI, Mary's half-brother, died in 1553, she fought to assert herself as the queen. The rules of monarchy at the time were against her claim, and many English citizens and nobles struggled with the idea of a female ruler. To gain support for her rule, she agreed to marry the Spanish Prince Philip. Philip was of noble English blood and gained his title through marriage to a noble Spanish woman who had died a few years earlier. The marriage would put Philip on the throne and serve as a strong alliance with Spain and gain the recognition of Mary's claim to the throne. At 37 years old, the prospect of Mary becoming pregnant was low, but a son born of the couple would have a strong claim to be a future king of England. Both Spain and England delighted at the news of Mary's pregnancy in 1554. She had experienced all the telltale signs of pregnancy, but in those days, a pregnancy wasn't confirmed until a child was born. By 1555, it was clear that the pregnancy had been false, and many attributed her pregnancy symptoms to her strong desire to have a child. This tricked her body into thinking it was actually pregnant, despite no actual pregnancy. There have been many other famous false pregnancies, and many more that have never touched the annals of history. In 2019, a false pregnancy would be at the center of a strange and highly tragic missing persons investigation that is almost too incredible to believe. This is the story of Heidi Broussard. Heidi Elizabeth Broussard was born on June 15, 1986. She grew up in the Lake Charles, Texas area and graduated from LaGrange High School in 2004. Around 2009, she met a man named Shane Carey and the two of them started a romantic relationship. Shane had a daughter from a previous relationship and in 2013, the couple welcomed a child of their own, a son named Silas Carey. Their relationship was said to be rocky at times, with the couple taking at least one major break during the relationship, but they were able to reconcile and in early 2019 they were once again pregnant. There are reports that this pregnancy put additional strain on the relationship as they were not well off financially and Heidi was worried about the expenses that are associated to a newborn. According to one source, the couple were on another break sometime around the discovery of the pregnancy but reconciled in May of 2019 and were engaged to be married. Heidi was not navigating her pregnancy alone. 
her good friend Megan Fiermuska, whom she had met around 2009 while at Texas Bible Institute, announced her pregnancy at almost the same exact time Heidi did. The two often joked that there was a good chance they could give birth on the same day and their children could be close friends that shared a birthday. Megan lived in Houston while Heidi and Shane had settled in the Austin area. Despite the 2.5 hour distance between friends, the two women stayed close, talking on the phone with each other daily. The father of Megan's unborn baby was said to be Christopher Green, Megan's on-again, off-again live-in boyfriend. Christopher and Megan had been together for roughly two years when Christopher called off the relationship in March of 2019. Megan announced her pregnancy around the time of the breakup and Christopher allowed her to live in his house because she claimed to have nowhere else to go. He said he saw that Megan's abdominal area was growing over time and she had asked him to feel her growing abdomen and it felt hard. But he hadn't seen her actual abdomen during the summer or fall of 2019 because they were not romantically involved. Heidi went into labor on November 25th, 2019 at 37 weeks pregnant. After being told of the birth, Megan hopped into a car and made the 2.5 hour drive to visit her friend and the new arrival in the hospital. Some found this strange, but others said it was just a sign of their good friendship. And so this is going to be kind of the first sign that something is kind of off in this whole situation. At 37 weeks pregnant, I understand that some women are, are forced to do some type of a travel if you're somehow up in, uh, caught up in a move that you didn't expect to have to make or traveling for something unexpected like a funeral. You, you might risk traveling at 37 weeks pregnant, but to solo drive a vehicle two and a half hours to see your friend in the hospital with her newborn baby while you're 37 weeks pregnant did raise some eyebrows. There's just a lot of things that can go wrong, I guess. You can go into labor, you can go into some type of a medical emergency, and this area between Houston and Austin, it's not that it's the middle of nowhere, but there are a lot, a lot of stretches where there's miles and miles between exits or towns and it's just again it, it's it's a riskier move than most people would have liked to have made I, I think most friends would be pretty understanding if you were 37 weeks pregnant and gave birth and your friend was 37 weeks pregnant that they wouldn't make that 2.5 hour trip you'd probably say hey just I'm probably not going to be able to make the 2.5 hour drive when you have your child because I'll have this newborn. I'm not going to do a 2.5 hour drive with a, a brand new baby in the car. So we'll just wait until the, the kids are old enough to travel and we'll start seeing each other. We'll talk, we'll FaceTime, we'll do whatever. But uh, I mean, granted, this was pre-COVID, so people weren't as understanding about things like FaceTime or Zoom or, or anything like that. But still, I think there would have been a less eyebrows raised if Megan hadn't made this drive at 37 weeks pregnant than if she had opted to stay home this late into this pregnancy and just congratulated and talked with with Heidi over the phone. So, so again, people are going to raise some eyebrows about this drive and while visiting the couple and the newborn in the hospital, Shane and Heidi gave Megan a key to their apartment for her to use during the visit. 
A nurse overheard Megan telling members of Heidi's family that she was also 37 weeks pregnant and expected to give birth at any moment. Megan became impatient at one point while waiting for her turn to hold the infant, a child the couple decided to name Margot Carrie. After Shane's father had just started to hold Margot, so this would be Margot's grandfather, Megan demanded she get a chance to hold the infant, an act that surprised many people in the room. And th there was only a couple people in the room at this time. I think it was just Shane, Heidi, the newborn, and I want to say it was Shane's parents, or maybe just Shane's father. It, it sounded like there was only a couple people in the room, maybe three or four. So it's not as if she was going to have to wait an absurd amount of time. It's not like she was at the end of a, a line of 20 people waiting to hold this child. And after you know, 30 minutes of not being able to hold this kid, she lost her cool. It was kind of one of those things where it definitely surprised the people in the room that she reacted so strongly, so quickly that she wanted her turn to hold this newborn baby, especially when she wasn't a blood relative. And again, it's not as if she was going to have to wait much longer. I mean, she could have, I guess it was really just a minute or two after the grandfather started to hold the baby that she demanded to hold him. It wasn't like he, you know, had been holding on to her for 15, 20 minutes, a half hour, and, and hadn't given up uh, the child to anybody else to hold. It was almost like she expected to be able to hold this child almost immediately. And after leaving the hospital, Megan was going to visit the apartment and she was supposed to leave the key that she was given on the counter inside the apartment. It was said that she stayed at the apartment overnight before returning to Houston the next day. Shane Carey would later tell investigators neither he nor Heidi ever found the key that they gave Megan. Shane and Heidi settled into their life with their three children, and sometime around December 8th or 9th, they got news from Megan that she had given birth to a healthy baby girl. They found it strange that they never received any photographs of the newborn during text conversations between Heidi and Megan. And this would definitely seem strange, especially in 2019, basically any time after probably the early 2000s when everybody's got cell phones with cameras and free text messages to send photos back and forth. I mean, this, is, this is something that unless the personality of the mother is one that they don't like taking photos and sending them out over the either text message or putting them on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. There, there are mothers out there that are very protective of their newborns and don't want those photos out there, but it didn't sound like Megan was of that personality. And it definitely did seem as a surprise because, again, usually the first thing that new parents do is blast out photos of of the child and a lot of the times of the mother and I sometimes feel bad because here's a photo of this woman in a hospital robe and yes there is that new mother glow to them after they've given birth and they're holding their child and they're so proud but this is a woman that often hasn't had a shower hasn't had a real meal and in sometimes 18 24 plus hours hasn't really slept but again those are typical introduction to the world photographs of a, of a new baby and you'll see them all over these Facebook and Instagram and everything so you'd think that a friend that was a good enough friend to make a 2.5 hour drive while 37 weeks pregnant after giving birth would send photos of her child to this friend that she drove two and a half hours to visit after the birth of her child. 
And on the morning of December 12th, 2019, Shane got up and left for work at 6.30 a.m., which was a normal routine for the father of three. Heidi would wake up and get Silas, their six-year-old son, ready for school that day. She left with Silas and Margo around 8 a.m. that day, and school security footage captured Heidi dropping off Silas and walking back out of the school with Margo in an infant seat carrier. At 8.30 a.m., Shane and Heidi had a normal conversation about the morning and the school drop-off. Shane said he had no further contact with Heidi, and he got off work around 1.50 p.m. He called Heidi on his way home from work, but the phone went to voicemail. When Shane arrived home around 2.50 p.m., he noticed Heidi's car in the apartment complex parking lot and assumed she was home. He walked up to the apartment and found the front door was unlocked, but that was not unusual as Heidi often left the door unlocked during the day. He walked into the apartment expecting to see Heidi and Margot, but no one was around and the apartment looked to be in normal condition. He assumed Heidi had gone to visit a friend with the three-week-old baby or maybe taken a stroll to a nearby park and he settled into the apartment for the afternoon. The first time he became concerned was when the school called to advise him that Silas had not been picked up after school. He drove to the school and picked up his son at 5.50 p.m. and waited at the school for a bit in case Heidi was running late to pick up Silas. And this is something... We'll talk about a little bit more here in the future, but a lot of people are going to bring up concern about this time frame uh, in regards to Shane, just the, the lack of concern. But Heidi's, I, I, it looked like Heidi had a history possibly as a vet tech or something along those lines, but this is three weeks after the baby, even though America has some pretty cruddy maternity leave uh, laws or... I guess understanding about maternity leave in almost all jobs the the minimum time that a woman is allowed to take off and then return to her job is around six weeks and so this is only three weeks into that six week maternity leave now again i think the women in a lot of jobs can return to work earlier if they want to and i have no idea whether heidi's plans were to take the six weeks some some places allow you longer i again i I, there was nothing in the research about that but most times a woman's going to take it in america is going to take at least uh, that month and a half to kind of get settled in with this new baby a lot of women are nursing at this time and the newborn requires a lot of nursing time so it's just difficult for a woman to return to work during this time period so shane's probably thinking hey you know she's got this time off I don't know what the weather is like in Austin, Texas uh, in December, but maybe it's a decent day, one of those warm December days in Texas, and she decides to go out for a walk pushing baby Margo in the stroller, whatever it might be. He's sounds like he works early in the morning, normally gets off in the afternoon, early in the afternoon. I wouldn't be surprised if he sat down on the couch, ended up taking a nap, something along those lines, expecting... Heidi to come home and and remember he's noticed that her car is in the parking lot so he's probably thinking she hasn't gone far it's possible she's just even in another apartment and if you've ever had a newborn child or if you have multiple newborn children uh, you know that they often fall asleep in those infant carriers as you're walking them around and so it's possible that she went to go visit a friend baby Margot fell asleep in the infant carrier 
she ends up having a longer conversation with the friend in the apartment complex than she expected because sometimes you know, these these infants will sleep in there for two, three, four hours, and that's just time that she gets to be able to be social, whatever it might be. You know, Shane's probably justified many different ways in which there's reasons why Heidi isn't home with Margot at this point, and he's not concerned until this issue that somebody didn't pick up Silas. And even then, he could be thinking, okay, she was at a friend's house, she lost track of time, maybe if it's a situation where the friend's just like, hey, you're exhausted, you aren't sleeping at night because the baby's waking up in the middle of the night, whatever it might be, just take a nap. And then the friend feels bad because Heidi's just completely exhausted, falls asleep on a couch or on a bed, and doesn't want to wake up this young mother and is more than happy to just spend this time with this this infant doesn't realize that Silas needs to be picked up. So again, Shane can justify a lot of different ways what's potentially happening here, but the concern level is going to grow as more time goes on. And after waiting 10 minutes or so, he left the school with their son and returned to the apartment complex. Growing more worried by the minute, he decided to check out Heidi's car and found it was unlocked, which was abnormal for Heidi who despite leaving the apartment unlocked, always locked her car doors. And this is another common thing you'll see. Some people, especially when they have young children, uh, they had a six-year-old boy, they had this daughter from Shane's previous relationship, locking something like an apartment door if the kids are coming and going, especially during the day, probably just a habit she got into of leaving this apartment unlocked. Some apartments are the kind that if you have it locked you can leave but then as soon as the door shuts you're locked out maybe it's something where she's been locked out a couple times and there's embarrassment sometimes fines associated with having management come unlock your door and so again not that uncommon to have the apartment door unlocked but more common for people to lock their car doors especially in an apartment parking lot where somebody can be walking through and just trying to pull open doors and dig through your car try to find some valuables or whatnot so Shane's going to be more concerned because this is out of the ordinary Heidi's car is almost always locked and inside the car was Heidi's purse and wallet with all of her IDs credit cards cash and personal items concerned that these items were left behind Shane went back to the apartment and started looking through the infant supplies and realized much of the baby's necessary supplies such as the infant car seat formula, diapers, wipes, etc. were left behind. The only items he couldn't locate were Heidi's cell phone and her keys. It was around 6.30 p.m. that Shane started calling friends and family to see if anyone knew where Heidi and Margot were. After discovering that no one knew where the two loved ones were at, Shane finally called the Austin Police Department at 7.31 p.m. Responding officers searched the apartment and also called friends and family and did a reverse 911 call to 4,000 local residents in the area just in case Heidi was visiting someone unknown to Shane, friends, or family. And it makes sound kind of asinine that the police also called these friends and family, but there's going to be reports later on that Shane was potentially physically abusive towards Heidi, and so it may be a situation where if a friend or family member was hiding Heidi and Margot from Shane, Shane calls of course they're not going to say oh yeah she's over here she's been here since this afternoon or since this morning or whatever but when the police call they might say hey here's the deal she's here but Shane 
beat the crap out of her the night before. We didn't want him to know she was here. So a lot of these missing persons, when it's a domestic situation, it might take a call from a police officer for them to be able to locate the missing person versus the the spouse or significant other that's looking for the, the missing person. And this reverse 911 call, we had a system like this in the police department that I worked at. There's a way to for the dispatch to send out a, kind of an automated message. It happens when a child is missing. It happens when there's some type of a natural disaster or, or whatever it might be. And of course, they're going to do some type of a pre-recorded message saying, hey, we're, this person is missing. Here's a name. If you've seen this person or if you know where they're at, please call the, the police department and let us know. And this is just, again, in case Heidi went to go visit some new friend of hers that she met and nobody has the number for them. The situation I talked about before, maybe she went over to visit, she's exhausted, she fell asleep, and, and this person doesn't realize anybody's looking for her. An Amber Alert, which is an emergency broadcast sent to personal cell phones, electronic billboards, and highway safety displays, and the local media, was considered, but ultimately the decision was made to not issue an alert because the missing child did not meet the criteria according to the Austin Police Department. And to explain this better, in order for an Amber Alert to be issued, there has to be evidence that the child was taken without permission from a legal custodian. And many states in America do not recognize legal guardianship of a child via an unmarried father without a court order. Basically, because Heidi and Shane were not married before or after she gave birth, Shane was not recognized by the state as a legal guardian, so Heidi could take the child without permission at any time. And this is kind of something that it does somewhat fly in the face of logic, but I've seen it many times before. If there's a man and a woman and they're not married and the woman has a child, the state will not automatically assign legal custodianship of that child to the father. Even if the father's name is on the birth certificate, it's, it's just something where clearly, for obvious reasons, they know that the child is biologically related to the mother, but without a court order, paternity test, it's just not assumed that the significant other at the time of the relationship is the biological father. There's has to be either proof of it or in the case of a marriage, there's at least some legal standing that exists. And, and again, it, it may seem unfair to this type of a situation, but it's just how the legal grounds are set in a situation like this. Basically to prevent some guy who happened to be dating a woman at the time from claiming legal guardianship of a child, because otherwise the reverse would work if just because you're with somebody, dating somebody when they give birth to a child or when they get pregnant with a child, if that guy all of a sudden just took that child and, and drove off, that would be a situation for an Amber Alert because he doesn't have legal guardianship. But if you're going to grant him legal guardianship just because you assumed him to be the father of the child, that would mean that in that situation, you could not do an Amber Alert, which makes no sense. So basically, they just have this blanket rule in most states that if you're not married at the time or after the birth of this child, uh, that you don't have legal guardianship, so there was not going to be an Amber Alert issued. Plus, 
Amber Alerts work best when there's vehicle information because it's very difficult for people to just locate a, a missing woman and a child, even if there was a situation where the Amber Alert could be issued. And Heidi's car is in the parking lot. Shane's the one reporting it. So what do you look for? Who, you know, which car do you look for? So with no leads to follow as to where Heidi and Margo went, suspicion rapidly fell on Shane and his actions that day were highly scrutinized. Heidi had reported to friends in the past that Shane had been abusive towards her at times during their 10-year relationship. The friends said they were shocked when Heidi decided to get back together with Shane and then accept his marriage proposal due to their past issues. And while these are just unverified reports from third parties, they did need to be weighed by law enforcement during the investigation. And this is important. It is often completely unfair to take this hearsay evidence, this evidence from a third party as to what's going on in somebody's life because Shane doesn't have a chance to defend himself. There have been many situations in which a woman has lied to her friends about abuse that they're experiencing in a relationship, either for sympathy or for understanding. This can happen sometimes when a woman is having an affair and she claims that her husband or her significant other is being abusive, which is justification for the affair. And it works the other way too. Guys, guys lie obviously to their friends too all the time about what's going on within their relationship. So as far as I could tell, there are no police reports or any arrests or anything towards Shane for this abusive behavior. And it's not to say that he wasn't abusive, it's very possible that he was, but when police are investigating a missing person's case and they talk to friends and the friends say, hey, Heidi has mentioned Shane's abused her in the past, again, it's not something that they can 100% believe, but it's also something that they're definitely not gonna ignore. And Shane's timeline for the day was also concerning to investigators and many who knew Heidi. After his conversation with Heidi at 8.30 a.m., Shane did not communicate with Heidi for the rest of the day. And while this may be normal, the fact he didn't seem all that concerned when he couldn't get a hold of Heidi on his way home or when she was missing when he arrived home was very suspicious to many people. Most people would expect a loved one to be concerned after an hour of no contact, even more concerned when you arrive home and your loved one and your newborn baby are missing, and then when your child is abandoned at school, alarm bells had to be ringing. It took Shane over 4.5 hours to report Heidi and Margo missing after he came home, and this led many people to believe he was responsible for the disappearance. He lacked an alibi for his whereabouts from around 2.50 until 5.50 when he picked his son up from school, and that was plenty of time to commit a crime against Heidi and Margo, clean up, and wait to report the missing. And again, it's just, to me, it's just bad timing for, for Shane. It's We're going to find out he doesn't have anything to do with, with this case. I know it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but it's just easier to talk about here. Again, this is a guy, he went to work that day. He came home, kind of probably went through a, a ton of different scenarios in his brain. The, when you come home and your significant other isn't there and you can justify within reason why they might not be there, as I mentioned, might be in a different apartment, might have gone for a walk, might have went to a, went to a park whatever you can justify with the information you have at that point which is there's no sign of a struggle in the apartment her car is there again and then let's say you fall asleep you've been up since obviously before i think 
he said he left for work at 6.30, so my guess is he had to be up before 6 a.m. that day. He's exhausted. Like if he falls asleep and takes a little bit of a nap, that accounts for some of the time. But in other people's mind, it's going to look extremely suspicious that he leaves work, his home, I think it was around 2.50, and then the first time anybody's going to see him in public is when he's picking up his kid at 5.50, We've seen situations before where after somebody's murdered somebody, they've tried to make a phone call to make it look like they're trying to get in contact with them. He, so he makes this one phone call that goes to voicemail. He, as far as I know, there's nothing in the research he tried calling again. So to, to a lot of people, it looks suspicious. And this was also roughly a year after the Chris Watts case in Colorado, and many people felt that it had a similar feel with a seemingly under-concerned father and a significant other failing to raise appropriate alarms about his missing loved ones. And so there's a lot of people that is, when this came out and Heidi went missing, the, the Reddit boards, the everything filled up. This is Chris Watts 2.0. This is another guy who didn't want a, a new child in his life, wanted to move on from, from his significant other so he killed her and didn't contact the police right away and now he's acting a little weird and his behavior that day doesn't make any sense he doesn't have an alibi and again because it was so close to the chris watts case they just kind of immediately assumed that shane carey was the next chris watts and due to the similarities in the case, media coverage of this missing person's case went viral locally and then nationally. Sheen agreed to do some media interviews during which he pleaded for Heidi and Margot to come home safely. And although no Amber Alert was issued, law enforcement tried to ping Heidi's phone but received no response from the phone. They then used a program designed to constantly ping the phone for 48 hours just in case it came back online but the phone was not activated during those 48 hours. Investigators began the painstaking process of reviewing security footage from homes that faced the apartment complex and doing a neighborhood canvas to see if anyone saw anything strange during the daytime hours of December 12th. It was during this canvas that a woman told investigators she saw a woman walking between the apartment buildings around 9.30 a.m. on December 12th carrying an infant without a car seat carrier and get into the back seat of a silver four-door sedan. The car then left so fast that the woman said there was no way that the infant could have been secured into a safety device. Home security footage caught a vehicle matching the one seen by the witness and matching the one owned by Megan Fiermuska driving in the apartment parking lot around 9.30 that morning. A photo lineup containing Megan and five other women were shown to the eyewitness and she pointed out Megan as the driver of the silver vehicle to a 60 or 70% sure result. And we haven't talked about these photo lineups uh, much. Uh, I don't know that they've come up in that many cases. Uh, what's interesting is that I got a lot of this information from the arrest affidavit for Megan. And in there, the, there's a specific line about the photo lineup saying that the other five women other than Megan were very similar in look and nothing about Megan's appearance made her jump out of this lineup and I had to create several lineups during my time as a police officer and this is something the courts really harp on is you sometimes see in TV or movies you'll have like this photo lineup and it's like one black guy against a bunch of white guys or one white guy with a bunch of black guys or whatever it might be 
And of course, whoever's the one that looks the most different is the person that the the eyewitness on the show or the movie is supposed to pick out. And in reality, any type of a lineup like that is going to get tossed out. You're supposed to find as many people that look like this lineup. And there's programs out there, there was software out there that would help us with our lineups. And it would grab people based off of skin tone and the size of the face in the photo, whether or not they had glasses on uh, in the photo, because you couldn't have your suspect have glasses, everybody else not have glasses, or everybody else have glasses and your suspect not have glasses. So these photo lineups are meant to be difficult. And so some people really question, like, how can somebody only be 60 to 70% sure? Well, this woman is seeing a female white driver from a distance through a car window. And then she's looking at a lineup of, of other women who are supposed to look like this driver. So she is able to pick out Megan as the driver, but she just can't be 100% sure. And that's not uncommon in these photo lineups for people to be less than 100% sure. And investigators began focusing on Megan and located a Google account for Megan under the pseudonym Megan Humphrey. A Facebook account for Megan Humphrey had at one time been tagged by Heidi and Heidi had an Instagram contact for Megan Humphrey. A search warrant was issued on Google for Megan's Google search history and found out that she had searched for reasons for an Amber Alert on December 12th at 10.30 a.m., well before even Shane knew Heidi and Margot were missing, and 12 minutes later, Megan searched for Amber Alert issued Austin. Megan followed a link for an unrelated Amber Alert out of Austin at 10.42 p.m. on December 12th. And on December 14th, Megan did a Google search for bodies found in Austin, Texas. Investigators found that the name Heidi Broussard was searched 162 times by Megan between November 11th and December 18th of 2019. The FBI was called in to assist on the case, and their behavioral unit recognized the case as one that had a high probability of being related to a maternal desire kidnapping which is one in which a female perpetrator kidnaps a newborn child to claim as her own. A search warrant was conducted on Megan's cell phone location information, and they learned that Megan's cell phone was in the Austin area on the morning of December 12th, around the time the eyewitness saw a vehicle matching her vehicle and someone who looked like Megan picking up a woman and an infant child in the apartment complex. Megan became the investigator's number one suspect, and they began surveilling her house. A high-altitude chopper was used to check the residence, and Megan's car was seen parked in the backyard of the house, up against the house, as if someone was trying to hide it from view from the street. While conducting surveillance on the home on December 19th, FBI agents saw a male leave the residence. They were familiar with Christopher Green due to information provided by Shane, and they trailed him to a local retail store where he was witnessed shopping for baby clothes and purchasing infant formula. The decision was made to stop Christopher outside the store to see if he would talk with authorities and shed some light on the situation. Christopher was cooperative and told investigators about Megan's pregnancy. He told them on December 12th he had left for work and Megan told him she was going to the beach with a friend that day. When he got home from work she still wasn't back and he left for work the next day without seeing her. But when he got home on December 13th she told him not to be mad and when he asked her why, he said there was a baby inside the house on a bed and she had given birth to their child without his knowledge. 
Investigators showed Christopher a photo of Margot Carey provided by Shane, and Christopher confirmed that was the baby at his house. Elation of the discovery of Margot turned to concern because the infant had been diagnosed with jaundice when it left the hospital, and Margot required special formula to help her battle the jaundice. As law enforcement wasn't sure if Margot was being treated for the jaundice, and untreated jaundice can lead to brain damage, an emergency entry of Christopher's home was made to check on the well-being of Margot. A baby was located unharmed in the house, but Megan insisted it was her child, the one she had given birth to on December 12th. She told investigators she had driven herself to a birthing center, but she couldn't remember which one, and her and a nurse delivered the baby without incident. She had spent a night at the birthing center and returned to Christopher's the next day. Investigators didn't believe her, and while checking out her vehicle in the backyard of the house, the unmistakable smell of decaying flesh was emanating from the vehicle. A search warrant for the house and the vehicle were executed, and the body of Heidi Broussard was found in a duffel bag in the trunk of Megan's car. Baby Margot was put into the care of social services for a 72-hour welfare hold, and then returned to Shane Carey after DNA testing confirmed it was baby Margot, and Shane was the biological father. And so I know that was a lot of story because this is one of those I didn't want to really break it up with a lot of uh, analysis of what was going on with this case. It's one of those cases that when I first heard this, I just I couldn't believe it. I, it's more of the, the fact that that Megan and Heidi were supposed to be friends. I mean, I, I've I've seen cases, I've heard of cases where complete strangers will kidnap a baby or a young child to be raised as their own oftentimes without harming the parents it's it's the the target of it is just to gain a child in which to be a parent to but this is one of those cases and now i'm not going to go far down the rumor mill there's a lot of stuff out there on reddit on this case about what was said between megan and heidi when heidi first got pregnant uh I will say I, di- I did mention that Heidi was concerned. I think most women in a, in a situation where it didn't sound as if this this pregnancy was expected or, or planned for, there's definitely going to be some trepidation, especially if you've had a child before because you understand the cost of formula and diapers and clothing having a newborn child is a very expensive situation and they had just gone through it with silas and silas is just six so it's kind of one of those usually once a child gets to elementary school age uh, until they're a teenager and start to eat you out of house and home like mine do uh when when they're once they reach that school age it's kind of the, the sweet middle ground because then you can go back to work uh, both parents can potentially be working, so there can be more money coming in to the financial situation at home. You're out of the cost of diapers and baby food and formula and it, all of the expenses that come along with, like I said, the clothes that they wear once or twice before they've outgrown. Uh, all of that stuff is kind of in the rearview mirror, and you start to, from a financial standpoint, feel a little bit better. You can maybe start to save some money for the future. And then all of a sudden, bam, you know, you, you realize you're going to start this process all over again. And you're going to be potentially not working for some period of time. So you're going to be taking in less income with more expenses. 
So there was talk of some trepidation on Heidi's part. Again, I won't get into some of the rumors that were out there about this, but the important thing to note is around this same time period is when Christopher Green and Megan are having relationship issues. It sounded like they had a lot of relationship issues anyway, but it, it sounds as if you know Megan was living, it was Christopher Green's house, Megan was living there, my guess is if it wasn't for Megan claiming this false pregnancy, Christopher probably would have had her move out. It was his house. He had every right to have her move out or evict her if it got to that point. But it sounds like Christopher Green was a pretty good guy. He felt bad about the potential mother of his child not having a place to live. So he allowed her to live there. I don't know if there was any rent situation between them or if she was contributing to bills or anything in any way. But basically, throughout this entire false pregnancy, it's he's operating on the idea that you know she's going to give birth to his child. He's going to be somewhat responsible for her situation for the next 18 years as they raise this child together. So he's, he's starting out on the right foot by providing her a place to live while she's pregnant and at some point you know the something has to fail here now Megan could have claimed a miscarriage at some point but she has to know too that as soon as this pregnancy that isn't even real but as soon as this this false pregnancy terminates in any way Christopher has no reason to allow her to live there anymore no reason to have any relationship with her at all anymore so really this this pregnancy and the prospect of a baby becomes this driving factor in her life uh, it provides her with a place to live provides her with some financial stability for the future so when she's approaching the point in which she should be giving birth to this child she knows she's not pregnant so she had been planning this for a long time. Now, the one thing that I never understood, and I tried to read a bunch of different ways, how Megan was able to actually get Heidi into the vehicle, and eventually she's going to kill her with a dog leash, she says. But the eyewitness says Megan's driving, and we can only assume the woman that she sees walking out of the apartment complex with the infant would be Heidi. Heidi doesn't have Margot in an infant carrier seat, so I don't understand how Megan got Heidi to get into the car without Margot in a car seat, how Heidi's purse then ended up back in her car. If That could have been something where Megan came back and put the purse in Heidi's car. It just, there's there's a there's a blank area there where I wish we knew more information because to me it's just really weird that this seemingly very responsible mother gets into the car with her best friend out of the blue, gets into the back seat of the car without her car in an infant car seat, and then she's never seen again. I'm not saying that Heidi in any way conspired as a part of this. I'm just saying from the research, and I read every different article I could in there, there was nothing in there about how this crime actually went down. How did Megan convince Heidi to go with her that day without the infant car seat, without plans that day, without telling Shane anything, like, hey, Megan just showed up, we're going to go for a ride. You know, it, just, it just seems really strange that... But, but then again, 
like that makes me think was this a different person was Heidi killed in the apartment and that's why Megan kept the key to the apartment were and was this other woman getting in the car with her was she not Heidi was this another person but then and they just missed nobody ever saw Heidi's body being carried out in this duffel bag and put into the trunk and so then if that's the case who is this other woman like I said I think most people assume that it's that it was Heidi getting into the backseat of the car with Margot but again to me that doesn't make a lot of sense that doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to fit what the narrative would normally be between a a woman and her best friend if they're getting together for this thing and then and then how does the the phone come into play again to me there's there's missing a huge part of this story but ultimately and megan's going to be charged with initially capital murder so she's facing a possible death penalty sentence in texas but in a plea deal that was agreed upon by the prosecutor's defense and heidi's family megan agreed to plead guilty to first degree murder in exchange for no death penalty and no trial she told investigators she strangled heidi with a dog leash after showing up at her apartment on december 12th but again i don't understand the the sequence of events in this crime that would match how she was actually able to murder heidi other than getting her separated from the apartment and, and committing the crime but but again there's just little details that don't match up and on february 2nd 2023 megan officially pled guilty to the crime of first degree murder and the death of heidi broussard and she was sentenced to 55 years in prison and baby Margot will turn four years old this november and will have to grow up without her loving mother uh, but that is the sad case of heidi broussard and and again i'm i'm open to if anybody knows anything more about this case and and has the facts as to how this crime actually occurred please feel free to email me let me know i can go back in and do an update i can make it an update in a future uh fill part in the beginning of my my podcast to say hey i you know i learned from so and so that in the heidi broussard case this is exactly how the crime went down I'm always open to learning more stuff. If, if I just missed an article that clearly detailed how the crime happened, it's just it, all the research that I did for this case, that's the big blank in the entire case is, is how this crime actually went down. But that being said, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. And as I said, feel free to write me at productions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.